It is Monday, January 29th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Callums. Today, a new initiative from the Winthrop Rockefeller Institute called Civic Arkansas. And voting is very important, but it's not the only way in which we can sort of own the future of our community. Plus, all the news from January 1975, a new political guard and a new speed limit. Uh, We won't start enforcing it until uh, the highway department completes uh, the erection of all these signs statewide. And Victor Luckerson discusses his book, Built from the Fire. It's about the 1921 race massacre in Tulsa. When black folks came to the state initially, a lot of them were members of the indigenous tribes. And as members of these tribes, they actually got land allotments. First, though, the latest news from NPR. Walton Arts Center's 10x10 Art Series presents the Galvin Cello Quartet, January 30th at 7 p.m. With members from China, Brazil, South Korea, and the U.S., this quartet presents works from a variety of cultural backgrounds. Their mission, to establish the Cello Quartet as a core part of the classical music world. For tickets, waltonartscenter.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, January 29th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Later on our show, the news from 49 Januarys ago, from a new governor to a new unpopular speed limit. This week's archives from the Prior Center take us to January 1975. First today... The Winthrop Rockefeller Institute is launching a new initiative called Civic Arkansas. The idea is to amplify civic engagement across the natural state. Janet Harris serves as the executive director and CEO of the Institute, and she says it's important to remember that civic engagement is more than just voting and politics. And voting is very important, but it's not the only way in which we can sort of own the future of our community. What motivated the Winthrop Rockefeller Institute to examine civic engagement in Arkansas? Well, our roots in civic engagement really go back to 1971 when Winthrop Rockefeller, Governor Rockefeller at that time, was giving his farewell address to the General Assembly and to the citizens of Arkansas. And he was talking to them about his hopes for the future of our state and how we might build that future together. And the thing that he said that we continue to be mindful of today, you know, 50 plus years later, is that every citizen has a duty to be informed, to be thoughtfully concerned, and to participate in the search for solutions. And then he counseled us uh, that only by working together can we make the contribution that we must make to build that future that we want to see. And so that That sort of philosophy underlies everything that we do at the Institute to convene people to talk about issues that are important to Arkansas and and more importantly than talking, try to arrive at solutions collaboratively by working together. And so from that kind of ethos, we had a partnership develop with the Clinton School of Public Service and Engage Arkansas, along with the Central Li- Central Arkansas Library System. And what we decided to do together was to um, examine how well we're doing in Arkansas on those three things, being informed, being thoughtfully concerned, and participating in the search for solutions, which we th- think of as civic health more broadly. And so the, based on, you know, the research and the work of the Clinton School of Public Service and their 
authors and writers and the National Conference on Citizenship, who kind of helps states determine how well they're doing in the civic health space. We uh, produced a report called the Arkansas Civic Health Index Report, and this is the first one that has ever been done in the state. So we're really excited to have some metrics now to know how well we're doing with our civic health. Can you give me a little bit more about some specifics that this report showed us? So this Arkansas Civic Health Index looks at uh, voter registration, yes, voter turnout, um, whether or not we talk with our elected officials, uh, whether or not we donate to political campaigns, it, that tells us how well we're kind of involved in the political process, but it also looks at things like where we get our news and uh, whether or not we trust our neighbors, whether or not we volunteer, whether or not we give to those organizations that are kind of, you know, nonprofits, charitable organizations that are out trying to make a difference in our community. Um, it It's whether or not we can have civil conversations about politics with our neighbors. And do we talk about politics and do we talk about issues that are important to our community? So social connectedness is a piece of what the Arkansas Civic Health Index report measures. And what I what I want to be sure that people know is that, yes, Arkansas is 51st in voter turnout and voter registration in the country. So we are at the very bottom. And that's something we absolutely want to work on. But there's some good news in the report, too, which is that, and, and I think no, no Arkansan will be surprised by this, we're a small state, we know each other pretty well, we like our neighbors, we're friendly, we're connected with each other, and we do very well when it comes to charitable giving in this state. So Arkansans are generous, they're warm, um, they they enjoy being in community. We like to talk to each other. Um, it's just that in the last several years, we've kind of stopped talking to each other about politics and issues. And um, we are uh, not as participatory in volunteering as we should be. So we, you know, civic health is really the fabric of everything that's kind of in between government, citizens, and, you know, the business community. It's nonprofits, it's schools, it's how well we're educated about how our government works for us. So there's just a lot of different ways that we can exercise that duty that we have that Winthrop Rockefeller talked about. Let's dive in a little bit into what Civic Arkansas is and what is kind of more specifically the the mission and drive of this project that you guys are launching. Well, the mission of Civic Arkansas as the program, and again, it's going to be sort of underpinned by the Arkansas Civic Health Index report. So we have this these findings and recommendations to go on. But the mission really is to leverage the strengths that we have in Arkansas. Those things I talked about with connectedness and friendliness and how well we give, how generous we are, we want to leverage those strengths to address the weaknesses that are in the report. Things like voter turnout, attending public meetings, talking with elected officials, volunteering. We want to know how we can strengthen those avenues for Arkansans to get involved. And the way that we're going to know that is to do what we do here at the Institute, which is practice the Rockefeller ethic. Um, that is bringing diverse viewpoints together and respectful dialogue and asking us all to work together to solve this problem. So is the hope that these avenues can be ways to bring forward more productive results in the places where we're struggling and and kind of maybe more specifically like what would a listening session look like like what could someone maybe look forward to oh that's a great question so um you know we've 
As a society, I think we've become a little reluctant to talk about politics because sometimes we get into these heated discussions, right? And we are very polarized as a country. I think that anyone who watches the news can tell you that. But the Institute and many other public engagement organizations across the state are dedicated to creating a space for people to be able to express their own experiences, their own values, and their own opinions without judgment and without um, conflict. I mean, yes, you may disagree with someone, but there's a way to do that respectfully, and there's a way to do that without being disagreeable. And so our uh, listening sessions and our work that we've done uh, across the state really on a variety of issues to invite people to the table to have their viewpoints shared and discussed always creates a structure and a process that allows for equal participation, but also ensures that that respectful dialogue takes place. And when you have the opportunity to hear from people about why they may feel a particular way about an issue, it causes you to understand them better. And so mutual understanding is a big part of this. Even if we don't agree, at least we understand the things that we share in common and the common future that we want to build together. Uh, and that's always been true about our democracy. So what we're hoping is that we can revive some of that by creating a space that maybe you're not comfortable talking about politics at the Thanksgiving table, but you are comfortable coming into this space in your community to say, this is what I want to see for the future. And this is how I sort of see it happening from my perspective. One of the things I, I keep hearing from you over and over again is this is this motivation to work together and to come up with solutions and compromises to make Arkansas better. And I, I hope that that's part of your, your drive here as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in our mission, we talk about continuing Governor Rockefeller's collaborative approach to creating transformational change. And we're inspired by his history of having done that, bringing people to Petty Jean Mountain. When he was governor, you know, he was a Republican governor with a mostly, and I'm saying almost all Democratic legislature. Uh, and yet he wanted to bring them to the mountain to sit down and say, where can we agree? Where can we work on things and move forward together? And personally, I don't think that's an antiquated idea. I think that is just as important to day in 2024 as it was uh, when he was governor. And so, um, yes, that is very much a part of what we try to foster and promote is collaborative problem solving. And look, we know that disagreement is part of our democracy. It's part of our republic. It's part of what makes our government so important is the notion that we can come together with different ideas and still manage to work together. And we want to hear from Arkansans about how we can support that. Those of us who are out there putting these conversations together, trying to help people register to vote or understand issues about the what's on the ballot and who's on the ballot. You know, we want to know how we can uh, make that process easier and get more people involved. Is there anything I missed, Janet, or anything you want to make sure we touch on with this specific topic? Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, we talked about being informed, being thoughtfully concerned and participating in the search for solutions. So I would be remiss if I didn't give you a couple of things that your listeners can do to do those things. Right. So first um, invitation I would make is for your listeners to visit our website. It's RockefellerInstitute.org 
slash Civic Arkansas. And if you go to that website, you'll be able to fill out a form and that will tell us that you don't have to give us a lot of information. We just want to know how to reach you and keep you informed about listening sessions and opportunities to participate in Civic Arkansas. You can can read the Civic Health Index report uh, if you want to know more about these numbers that we discussed. Uh, you can also, you know, kind of follow the progress of what we're learning as we go through this next year. And if you go to our website and you sign up, you can expect to hear from us about opportunities how where you can participate. And then the other thing I would just say is like, take a look at the report and think about what what it is that your role, your role, your listener's role is in civic participation, whether it's Um, how you get your news, how you get informed about issues, how you talk to your elected officials or your neighbors about politics. You know, we all have a responsibility and we all do care about very specific things in our community. So if you're unsure um, about how to volunteer or get involved with an organization that creates positive change, uh, take a look around your community. Uh, Take a look around in places that you can be with your neighbors, whether you agree or disagree, in creating that shared positive future. And then the final thing I would say, this is election year. If you're not registered to vote, it's there's plenty of time to go and get registered. Go get registered to vote. Um, it, your vote makes a difference. The Arkansas Secretary of State has a wonderful, um, lots of tools for you to check your voter registration, see what's on your ballot. So, you know, go out and make sure that when the primary and the general elections come around this year, that you are one of those citizens who's ready to be thoughtfully concerned and go to the polls. Janet Harris is the executive director and CEO of the Winthrop Rockefeller Institute. Janet, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Ahead on our show, we hear from Victor Luckerson. Tomorrow, he'll be on the University of Arkansas campus to discuss his book, Built from the Fire, about the 1921 race massacre in Tulsa. I was really trying to go beyond the mythology of Black Wall Street and tell the true story of Greenwood. You know, really, it was a place where people were, as you said, sort of struggling and striving in equal measure. And so when you read this book, you get to learn about all of these folks who came from the Jim Crow South to Oklahoma. Kyle talked with him Friday, and we'll hear the conversation later on today's Ozarks at Large. Flora Farms, a Missouri-based marijuana cultivator and dispensary, opened up a storefront in Pineville this month. The new location serves both medical and recreational marijuana to patrons over the age of 21 right on the Arkansas-Missouri state line on the Missouri side. Mark Hendren is CEO of Flora Farms. He's an Arkansas native hoping to expand the business's footprint in southwest Missouri. He says the previous location in Neosho was not large enough to satisfy customer demands. Very good location, but... Very small. Only had room to wait on four or five customers at a time. It didn't really have the uh, space for a drive-through or the kind of capacity that it turns out we needed. Once the Missouri voters in uh, 2022 passed adult use slash recreational marijuana, business dramatically improved across the state. 
went up about, uh, depending on where you were, I think statewide business went up about 300, between three and 400 percent statewide. And so we just didn't have enough space in that facility to meet all the customer needs. Mark says every Flora Farms location meets both the security and regulatory guidelines outlined by the state of Missouri for marijuana cultivation and retail. We are licensed and regulated by the, by the Missouri Department of Cannabis Regulation. We're lucky in the state of Missouri that the voters approved what's called a limited license footprint. That means there's only about 400 licenses um, that were awarded licenses, and the state regulates those very tightly, as they should, whereas some other states don't have a limited license cap, so they may have hundreds if not thousands of licensees out there, and it's a lot more difficult for the regulators to keep up with. Missouri, as I said, only has about 400 licenses. I think our na- some of our neighbors nearby have hundreds if not thousands of licenses that have to be regulated. And uh, we're responsible to the Department of Senior Services which is, and the Division of Cannabis Regulation to follow all their rules, all their regulations. They inspect us on a regular basis. They came down and inspected that facility at state line before we could ever move in. And not only do we have to have full security measures and meet all their requirements, it's very strict as it should be. For us to sell cannabis to, an, to a medical customer, they have to provide a medical card, either from Missouri or another state that recognizes medical cannabis, or in the alternative for adult use, is what we call it now. Most people still, a lot of people still refer to it as recreational, to verify that the person has a government-issued photo ID and verify that they are 21 years of age, and the most we can sell at any given time is three ounces. Ozarks at Large reached out to the Arkansas State Police for comments on how they are adjusting to potential increases in marijuana coming from outside of the state. Director of Communications Cindy Murphy says they can't speak to specific quantities from Missouri, but the state police have, quote, seized 28,000 pounds of marijuana coming in and through Arkansas from other states during the past five years. Stop, whoa, yes, wait a Well, that may take you back if you're of a certain age, that song. And for me, it's not a very good memory. That's one of my least favorite bands, The Carpenters. Karen Carpenter was um, really a pretty good drummer. Yes, she was, and she was a good singer. That just wasn't my type of music when I was a child. I will tell you that the adult I'm interviewing is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Why did we hear The Carpenters? Well, that happened to be the number one song this week in January, the last week of January in 1975. Gerald Ford was president. Um, You know, Nixon had just been, uh, had resigned um, the year before and during the summer. And um, Vietnam War was about to end, so um, you could get a quart of milk for forty-six cents. Was that good or bad at the time? That was that was decent. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, a loaf of bread was thirty-three cents, and you could get a first-class stamp for a dime. All right. So the good old days. Right. Right. Well, there was a lot going on in Arkansas that month, uh, especially in politics. You know, there had just been a November election, and what had occurred during that election was uh, Dale Bumpers, governor of Arkansas, uh, 
was elected to the U.S. Senate. So he was going to leave Arkansas and go to Washington. Uh, David Pryor was going to be uh, moving to the governor's mansion. So he was elected governor. But what happened at the very first of the year is Bumpers determined that he should resign as governor so he could go ahead and go to Washington and begin uh, his duties as, as a senator. So this was in the first week of, of January, but a report from KTV's Tom Newberry on uh, the governor leaving office. Governor Dale Bumpers plans to resign at 11 o'clock Friday morning, 11 days before his term ends, so he can begin work as a United States Senator. When Bumpers moves out, Lieutenant Governor Bob Riley will move in. He'll be sworn in as governor Friday morning in the Senate chamber by Supreme Court Chief Justice Carlton Harris. Riley will become only the second lieutenant governor in Arkansas's history to be elevated to governor. The first was Harvey Parnell in 1928. Riley will serve until noon January 14th when Governor-elect David Pryor will be inaugurated. I actually met Bob Riley once when I was a kid. Oh, you did? Yep. He was super gracious and super uh, generous with his time. Wasn't he a professor at uh, that I don't, OBU? I, 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 I can't tell you that. I just know I was 9, 10, or 11, and I met him, and he spent time with me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was governor for— 13 days, I think? Something like yeah. that, yeah. Less than two weeks. Right. But um, so Bumpers is resigning, and KTV was there for his final address to the state legislature. It is my firm belief that Arkansas is now at a crossroads. In the past, we have had to deal with providing the very barest necessities. With our new economic affluence, our abundant treasury, revenue sharing for the states, the counties, and the cities, we are in a position to make positive decisions, to strengthen our weaknesses, and solidify our strengths. The people of Arkansas are no longer clinging to the traditions of the past which have too long restrained us. No longer does the spirit of defeatism pervade the thinking of our people. And they are looking to you and me for the bold new leadership to which they are richly entitled. And so after that address, Bumpers is leaving, of course, KTV's Jim Pitcock, who was the news director, uh, met him on the steps of the state capitol and got some comments from Bumpers about going to the Senate. I think if I weren't going to the Senate, perhaps I would be even more melancholy than I am. But knowing that I'm going to the Senate to face other challenges and other problems helps. I think the greatest sickness there is is boredom. And uh, I've always had to have something to stimulate me. And, and uh, I think the massive national problems that I'm going to be confronted with in the Senate will, will really be a great challenge. And I hope I can keep faith with the people. And certainly I'm going to do my very best to do all I can to contribute toward the solutions to those very serious problems. David Pryor is inaugurated into the governor's office, and here is a portion of his first address to the legislature. I sincerely feel that my program is not elaborate, but hopefully sensitive to the needs of Arkansas and hopefully in the direction of common sense. Certainly, I know that you will find, and I hope that you will find, 
it is responsible. My administration will not seek merely activity, but results, for it will not ultimately be judged upon any new or expensive or expanded programs, but the test of our progress lies in whether we have kept our covenant with our people. We shall be judged not by the addition of new programs, but by the efficiency in the ones of which we have that must fill our present needs. In the days ahead, I shall ever be aware of the bond that must exist between the private citizen and the public official. And then, interestingly, David Pryor talks about one of the first phone calls he got as governor. Yeah, this was interesting, found in there. Thought thought we would just throw this in, but uh, in the primary, he had run against Orville Faubus, former governor, and had beat him and then won handily in the general election. But shortly after he came into office, uh, Faubus called him and just kind of gave him a heads up since he had been there years uh, before him. And uh, this is what uh, Pryor said uh, Faubus told him. He sure hit the nail on the head by saying to me, he said, you're going through the most difficult time that you're going to go through because now all of your friends are coming to you, quote, wanting their rewards, unquote, and there are not that many rewards to give. And there are days when you're going to have to say no, and there are many, many times when you're going to have to say no, and you will be saying no about ten times more than you say yes. Going to have your friends coming with their hands out. You're <laughs> yes. going to have to say no. Well, and he was careful to say, and there aren't that many. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't owe that many people favors. Right. So outside of politics, uh, course recession there was a gas shortage mm-hmm. gasoline and uh, prices I was looking at uh, film of the pumps and it, it seemed to jump from 47 cents a gallon to 57 cents a gallon just in that month and uh, you know that's doesn't even mention the the long lines and yeah running out of gas and just the nightmare that was. But um, KETV talked to several gas station uh, owners and operators, and uh, this is what they had to say about the problem. It's going to be some doubling up. People are going to have to use carpools more. And uh, just as I said to my wife the other night, uh, she and I are going to have to start uh, using one car to go to work in. It'll be a little inconvenient. The hours are a little different. But uh, I just feel like people are going to use that car. They will uh, They will pay that six or seven cents or whatever. These poor people can't, can't afford to pay that. You know, if they raise it up 10 or 15 or 20, maybe up to 20 cents, um, they can't hardly pay that price because, you know, they just have to stop and, you know, do a lot of walking because, or start riding bicycles or something because they can't afford that price. There is a little possibility it'll stabilize the business. Could you explain that? Well, by stabilizing it, I feel like we've gotten back to the point where we're having gas wars and confusion again, and some operators are operating without a profit again, and this might help to stabilize the situation. This you're about to hear is Bob Justice, 
and he's with the Independent Service Station Operators Association. And um, there had been talk about rationing, and the uh, they were against it. <laughs> of course, exceptions would have to be made for some highway and freeway stations to remain open for emergency travel on Sunday. But we know this could be worked out satisfactorily. We are totally opposed to any plan that would involve rationing or price increases to our customers. The solutions to our fuel problems are not to be found in adding to the high cost of living through 10, 15, or 20 cents a gallon increase in prices. Rationing has too much opportunity for abuses and is too expensive to administer. The solutions we offer will work without undue hardship to the public. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm only, I'm not even 12 yet when this month that we're reviewing was taking place. But I remember rationing was seriously on the table. There yes. were serious conversations. And I was close to driving age. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember thinking, I'm not looking forward to this. Yeah. You know, you go out to cruise around and you're not cruising, you're going to sit in line <laughs> for gas. But, you know, there were all sorts of ideas, like I said, you know, to come up to save gasoline and save money. And th this was the big, big deal um, that the government decided to lower the speed limit on interstates from 70 or 75 in some cases to 55 they did and they did and uh well that was in january of 75 and ktv was there when they were changing the signs and talked to uh the state police and this is bob Steele interviewing jim beach uh, we won't start enforcement until uh, the highway department completes um the erection of all these signs statewide, and they tell us it'll be about 30 days before they do this. Do you expect most Arkansans to comply? I think so. I think by and large, the majority of the people will voluntarily comply with it. Uh, but there are a few individuals who won't, just like they didn't comply with the 75 mile an hour limit, and uh, those are the people we'll have to take enforcement action against. And it wasn't quite as successful as they thought. They had done studies, and the federal officials had hoped that it would uh, gasoline consumption would fall by 2.2 percent. It didn't even hit that. They estimated it was like 0.5 percent, or maybe upwards of one percent. So it wasn't that successful, but it. it did a little bit. Made a little bit of a difference. It did yeah. save lives, though. Didn't highway fatalities go down in the yes, years? Yes, I believe yeah. that's correct. Yeah. They they did have several studies that showed the benefits right. of it. Right. But it, you know, didn't last, of course. What about alternative transportation? Well, uh, Amtrak comes to mind, the railroad, which uh, was never a big factor in Arkansas. Uh, yeah, you got that Little Rock to St. Louis, isn't it? And on up to Chicago. Right. I actually rode that one time back in the early 80s. Uh, senator John McClellan, uh, senior senator from Arkansas, mm -hmm. uh, 
talked about Amtrak and using it as a way to save money. Had the money appropriated for it for the past two years, as you may know, to provide uh, passenger service in Arkansas. But when this uh, energy crisis developed, well, I'm sure that was the what impressed the administration and uh, possibly caused their favorable decision to now grant our request. But we would have persisted in it because I had the money appropriated and I intended to, if it was within my power, to make certain that Arkansas was no longer discriminated against, that we got the service. And it's going to mean a great deal to people in, in, in this uh, uh, period of energy shortage and in a period of curtailment of the use of gasoline and of fuel. Uh, people, many people would elect to ride the trains anyway if the trains provided uh, good service. Uh, but and, and now that uh, they, we are looking for ways to save fuel, many people will ride the train instead of driving car long distances. Of course, with January, you have Martin Luther King's birthday. Not a holiday, though, in 75. No, it wasn't. No, no, no. It, wasn't a, it wasn't a holiday until 86. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, well, and this is not even eight years after his murder. Right. I mean, okay. Right. He yeah. would have been 46 years old Wow. on this day in 75. And there were celebrations, and KTV's Jim Pitcock uh, was on hand to report on that. The Memorial March started at the New Freedom Baptist Church at 12th and Johnson and moved to the steps of the state capitol. The march was organized by Operation Push, people united to save humanity. I believe that this day should be the day in which we carry out our activities toward bringing the issues to the people of the Arkansas uh, and these issues this year, in 1975, we believe the major issues are unemployment and hunger in the state of Arkansas. Finally, speaking of alternative transportation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What is this? Well, this was great. Um, unfortunately, well, let's, let's set this up first. Um, there was a rematch. This wasn't even the first time it happened. We, we haven't even told people what it is yet. Right. It was a race on the Arkansas River between, between two uh, paddle boats, river steamboats, <laughs> uh, the Delta Queen uh -huh. and the Border Star. And they had raced in 1974 and this was the rematch in 75. Now, this is a report from KTV's Judy Pryor, no relation to right. Barbara and David. But uh, in this report, you'll hear from the captain of the Delta Queen, who's uh, Ernest Wagner, and the captain of the Border Star, Jack Trotter. On a day like today, it's kind of hard to imagine the lovely weather we had last year for that first boat race on the Arkansas River between the Border Star and the Delta Queen. That's why I came all the way from Zetland, Ohio, over here. We have Captain Trotter has got together, and he's agreed to give it a, a straightaway race. Also, he's going to give me a handicap of a quarter of a mile, 
because he is so much smaller and he can start so much faster than the Delta Queen can. Well, I thought the Delta Queen was supposed to be faster uh, than the Border Star. No, I don't. I wouldn't say that. I think the speed of both boats are just about equal. If anything, the Border Star might be just a little faster than the Delta Queen because, like I say, it's lighter, and the, the Delta Queen is so heavy and so big, and we don't get, really have a long enough a race to really tell what the Delta Queen can do. If anything, it may be a few hundred yard advantage to give an opportunity. We're going to be racing upstream, and uh, there's so uh, 1,650 gross tons. Uh, there's a lot more in the border, far, uh, border star is 45 gross tons. So I don't guess we can get off quicker, and we'll have less passengers uh, because we just simply can't carry as many passengers as they can. So hopefully we can get it off. We're going to be starting from an all-stop position. And that means all the machinery and the paddle wheel in a stop position when the flag for starting a race lowers. Now, this is the worst part. Okay. I don't know who won. I mean, I have looked everywhere. I have looked in newspaper archives. I've looked in our archives. I even called, uh, you know, the, the Mississippi River uh, Historical Society. I... And I can't find out. We I, don't have a record of who won. No. Was there ever a third race? I don't think so. Um, I can't. But, I, but one of these days, I'm going to find out who won that thing. And if anybody knows, let us fill us in. Delta Queen versus the Border Star. And this the race was actually in February. They announced it in uh. January, but it was in February of '75. All right, so that's what was happening in January 1975. Yeah, that was a good idea. That yeah. was Kyle's idea well, to do that. Well, I, we got another month coming up? Well, it, it'll it be February next time we're on. So February 75? No, let's do 76. Oh, getting ready for the bicentennial? Yeah, something like that. We'll see what, what's... We'll see what the number one song was. First week of February 1976. And it's a heck of a lot better than the Carpenters. Well, hold and on. And I have a whole story to tell you about the Carpenters from when I was a kid. Well. There's a reason they are once we find out who won, <laughs> Once we find out who won the paddle boat race, you can tell us the story. How's that? That's perfect. That's Rand a deal. Randy Dixon is with the Dave and Barbara <laughs> Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Thank you, Randy. I'll see you next week. KUAS Community Engagement Manager Jasper Logan here to shout out a few things on our community calendar that'll be happening this week, January 29th through February 2nd. First up, happening all week is Theater Squares, What Does the Constitution Mean to Me? will be showing every day, 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. through February 3rd. A Pulitzer Prize finalist and Tony Award nominee, this bold, optimistic new play was hailed by the New York Times as not just the best play to open on Broadway, so so far this season, but also the most important. Also happening all week is Arts Live Theater's Fall After School Classes. Classes are available for ages 4 to 18 years old. Also, be on the lookout for their weekend workshops coming soon. On February 1st, AAC Live presents Sarah Shook and the Disarmers in downtown Fort Smith at the 801 Media Center. Show starts at 7.30. On February 2nd, UAFS Gallery of Art and Design will be hosting an opening reception for Fierce Women, paintings by Catherine Strauss from 5 to 7 p.m. And lastly, Comedy and Club 509 is back at the American Kava Bar, 8 to 10 p.m., Friday, February 2nd. Keep up with what's happening in our community by checking KUAF Community Calendar. Also, looking to promote an event? 
Throw it into our community calendar at KUAF.com slash community calendar. You might just hear it on the air. This is Ozarks at Large. Victor Luckerson's book, Examining the Greenwood District of Tulsa, explores how the district became known as Black Wall Street, how it was engulfed in violence during a race massacre in 1921, and what's taken place in the century since. Titled Built from the Fire, the book goes beyond merely explaining what happened and does more than simply mythologize Greenwood. Victor Luckerson will discuss the book tomorrow night at 7 in the Multicultural Center classroom on the fourth floor of the Arkansas Union. Luckerson says he spent time and energy getting both the history and contemporary story of Greenwood right. You know, you just mentioned that it wasn't mythologized, and that really was part of my goal with writing Built from the Fire. It was kind of, I was really trying to go beyond the mythology of Black Wall Street and tell the true story of Greenwood. You know, really it was a place where people were, as you said, sort of struggling and striving in equal measure. And so when you read this book, you get to learn about all of these folks who came from the Jim Crow South to Oklahoma and really built this place from nothing. You know, this place of not only not only economic prosperity, but also a lot of community solidarity. It was really important for me to really drill down into the true bonds people had in that community. And then there's a lot of lessons we can have today about how to build a successful community for ourselves in uh, 2024. You mentioned that people were drawn from Jim Crow South. How were they drawn? Yeah, I mean, you have to remember that in this era of the early 1900s, uh, places like Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, were places where black folks had very few rights. Um, you know, in the book, I write about this family, the Goodwin family, who were living in rural Mississippi in the early 1900s in a town called Water Valley. Now, Water Valley was a place where if a black man was walking on the sidewalk and a white man approached him, the black man was expected to scurry into the gutter. And so for one of these men, black men in the community, J.H. Goodwin, he wanted to find a better life for his family. And ultimately, the place to do that was in Oklahoma. You know, Oklahoma at the time, uh, it was not yet a state. It was a very kind of undefined land in terms of what it was going to be politically and racially. You know, everyone knows that there are a lot of indigenous people in Oklahoma, as well as white folks and black folks. And so there was a sort of this period of time when Oklahoma kind of could have been defined in any kind of way. And a lot of black folks who were already there were kind of beckoning people from beckoning people from the Jim Crow South, telling them that, hey, this is going to be a place where we can have land and we can have equal rights. Uh, we can really build a life for our, lives for ourselves. And so that that hope and dream almost becomes more tragic when you realize what happened in 1921, when this idea of black prosperity and success was literally burned to the ground uh, in Greenwood. What worked before white residents of Tulsa destroyed Greenwood? What worked? You know, I think it's a few things, Kyle. I think that land ownership was really important in Greenwood and in Oklahoma. Um, When black folks came to the state initially, a lot of them were members of the indigenous tribes. And as members of these tribes, they actually got land allotments uh, in the early 1900s. And so, you know, if you've heard that phrase, 40 acres and a mule, this idea that black folks were supposed to get land after the Civil War and did not, um, it actually happened in Oklahoma. Some folks actually some folks actually got 160 acres, in fact. And so that land wealth that was kind of um, endemic to the state really helped to build up black prosperity. And in addition to that, I think you had a lot of just really ambitious folks who made it their way out west. You know, I mentioned J.H. Goodwin, who owned a funeral home and a um, sort of a grocery store in Greenwood. There's also Lula Williams, a woman entrepreneur who owned a movie theater called The Dreamland. Um, she actually owned three movie theaters throughout the state of Oklahoma. So, you know, that was, you know, maybe the future AMC of the era. 
um, until unfortunately Lulu's business was destroyed uh, during the race massacre. And so you had a mix of, I think, a lot of uh, land that Black folks had to do with how they pleased, but also just a lot of really ambitious folks who came from the Jim Crow South trying to build something new for themselves. What is it like to try to put a book together about an event that happened as you're researching it nearly a century ago? You know, it was tough. I've never written a book, so I was figuring it out as I went. <laughs> um, I kind of like to say, you know, when I was in school, my mom always told me I needed to go to grad school. I didn't I'm not doing that and enter journalism instead. So this is this is kind of my graduate course, you know, writing this book. Um, you know, for me, I think it was a mix of just really being really patient with documents and research, you know, spending a lot of days in newspaper archives, a lot of days in library archives. But also, I think it's really important to get intimate family stories. And so in addition to doing traditional archival research, I actually connected with a lot of the families from Greenwood. You know, I mentioned um, Lula Williams a little while ago who owned Dreamland Theater. Um, you know, her business was destroyed during the race massacre and she suffered from symptoms similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, actually, and died not too many years afterwards. And her family, her descendants actually shared with me letters that she wrote after the race massacre that really showed some insight into her uh, deteriorating, deteriorating uh, mental condition. And so obviously somebody sharing something that intimate and painful is not going to happen um, in the blink of an eye. And so I had to spend a lot of time really getting to know families uh, from Greenwood and showing them that I was going to represent them in a fair and honorable way. Did you get a sense of because the, the, the massacre in Tulsa's in 1921, we'd had the red summer of 1919 with horrible events in dozens of of states in scores of communities, the Elaine massacre in Arkansas. Were you able to get a sense of the concern, the worry that residents might have hearing, if at all, about the other massacres that had happened a year or two before Greenwood? Yeah. You know, one of my sort of surprising finds in the research actually was you mentioned the Red Summer in 1919. There was an event in uh, East St. Louis, a massacre there in 1917, which sort of kicked off that era of racial violence in a way. You know, in some ways, it's kind of bookended by East St. Louis in 1921 or 1917 and Tulsa in 1921. And actually, one of the survivors of the East St. Louis massacre came to Greenwood just months before the Greenwood massacre in early 1921. And so I really thought about that. You know, these folks who were from Greenwood going to the church. Uh, on one one weekday evening to hear from this man who had lived through this horrific event and them, you know, certainly not expecting what happened to them, but also knowing that this was sort of part of the risk of black life in America in that era. And so for me, it was really important to illustrate that what happened in Greenwood was not unique. You know, you mentioned Elaine, which had its own race massacre in 1919. Um, you know, these events were happening all across the country, north and south, east and west. And so kind of throughout the book, I tried to kind of getting back to the idea of demythologizing. I tried to really illustrate how what happened to Greenwood, both good and bad, was really endemic to black communities across America. What pushed you to write this first book? Well, I've been writing since I was five years old, tooling around my parents' typewriter. So I think I always knew I was going to write a book at some point. Um, but in terms of this book in particular, I actually used to live in Atlanta before starting this project and moving to Tulsa to work on it. But when I was living in Atlanta, I actually um, was having lunch with a friend one day several years ago, and the film uh, 12 Years a Slave came up. Um, my friend had never seen it, and he was telling me he didn't really want to see it because he was tired of only seeing black folks being brutalized in these historical depictions. I think a lot of times when black history is talked about, we're only being 
whipped as slaves in the Civil War or sick by dogs in the Civil Rights Movement. And so I asked my friend at the time, had he ever even heard of Black Wall Street? He had not. You know, we were two young black men in our 20s in that time. And so I just felt as if if folks of my age don't even know about this story about black success and black prosperity, that really needs to be told to a much wider audience. And so really it was that combo with my friend and realizing that there were more to be told about our history than just the trauma that made me want to move to Greenwood and uh, restart my life over here. I love the title of the book. And I, I wonder how you landed on the words that are in the title. Oh, yeah, thanks. No one's asked me this. I love this question. Um, so actually, it's a quote. It's a direct quote from a Greenwood descendant, uh, Regina Goodwin. Uh, Regina Goodwin, her family, as I said, moved to Oklahoma in the early 1900s. Uh, her grandfather, Ed Goodwin, bought the black newspaper that succeeded the social star, the Oklahoma Eagle. Um, her uncle, Jim, is a very prominent attorney in Greenwood. And Regina herself is a um, legislator in Greenwood. She's one of the only black women in the Oklahoma State Legislature. And so when I started on the project, I decided I really wanted to focus on that family and shadow Regina. And I watched one of her campaign speeches um, when she was running for the legislature. And she had this quote that said, uh, some women are lost in the fire, some are built from the fire. I am that woman. And so when I heard that quote, kind of like a light bulb went off in my head about, like, oh, that's kind of what this story is about. These, these people surviving all these ups and downs and sort of coming out even stronger for it and still protecting their community. And so I think, you know, to think about the folks of Greenwood in 1921 really being built from the fire, you know, responding to that massacre and building up an even stronger community afterwards, and then being able to follow that narrative for 100 years and see people like Regina who are still defending Greenwood. That's kind of how I think that title really resonated for me. What can we glean or learn about community 103 years later? You know, I think that to me, the big lesson of Greenwood's story is that um, it's really important to build bonds in your community kind of before the crisis hits. Often these days, I think a lot of people only really engage with their neighbors or the community, like at a protest, maybe, or at a big political rally or probably, you know, selection year, election years. But um, I think to really be able to build a sturdy community and sturdy connections, you have to have people's backs sort of outside that context. And so if you think about Greenwood, those are the people in Greenwood in the early 1900s. They were talking to each other every day at the movie theater, at church, um, and all of these sort of casual, intimate moments. And I think that community building in normal times helped them to withstand devastation. And so I really hope that we can find ways to build up spaces where we can have um, personal interactions, human interactions, loving interactions that don't have anything to do with politics or convincing somebody to do something for you politically or that kind of thing. I think that's kind of the key to, in some ways, actually building a stronger political base or stronger civic activism. It's finding ways to um, help each other when, you know, the political ask isn't part of the equation. Do you have conversations with your audiences about you know, efforts to not allow or certainly discourage certain things to be taught in history classes? Oh, certainly. I think at the very end of my book, I actually talk a little bit about um, our state superintendent in Oklahoma, Ryan Walters, who has been very adamantly against the so-called critical race theory and um, really hadn't made a lot of efforts to limit what can be taught in schools. I know that's going on in lots of other states, including Arkansas right now. And so I think you can't really talk about this story without acknowledging the fact that um, some people don't want this story to be acknowledged at all. And I also think it's important to really understand that 
often um, acts of horrific violence are preceded by trying to limit free thought. And so I think that dynamic is really important to understand as we sort of navigate what's going on in America right now. Um, you know, there's always parallels to be drawn and lessons to be drawn from history. And I think it's really important to really sort of folks to really grasp that when people are trying to limit what you can think about and how you can move, um, that's sometimes be a precursor to even more extreme measures. Victor Luckerson's book is Built from the Fire, the epic story of Tulsa's Greenwood District, America's Black Wall Street. He speaks tomorrow night at 7 in the Multicultural Center classroom on the fourth floor of the Arkansas Union. It's open to the public. We spoke by Zoom Friday morning. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, NPR's Aisha Roscoe discusses the book she's edited, HBCU Made, a celebration of the black college experience. You know, I think I wanted I wanted to be able to to define myself away from um, like where I had been at, you know, when I was in school. And, and so when I was like in high school, Aisha Roscoe talks with Matthew tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today include Randy Dixon, Jasper Logan, and Sophia Narani. Matthew produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Lily Barcroft is our social media intern at KUAF. Kyle, last week, uh, went up to the university campus to work on a story about uh, affordable housing and this new project that the design school is working on. And uh, I, I hit up Lily and I said, hey, I'm going to be on campus. Will you be on campus? Do you want to come and take some photos and videos for the story I'm working on? She's like, yeah, absolutely. And so I was like, okay, great. She's going to come for five minutes, take some pictures and leave. She was there for like 20 minutes. She right. took a ton of video. She took a lot of photos and was just like, oh, Okay, I love when people go above and beyond. My ask was very simple of like, hey, can you come and just take a photo or two? And she's like, yeah. And then she's there for like 20 minutes and really went above and beyond. So thank you, Lily, for that. You can look forward to that story on Thursday. All right. Oh, boy, it's a packed week on our show. Yeah, it um, it's a packed, I don't know. I feel like we're past the holidays and now we'll see them ahead. Yeah. Exactly. Steam ahead. Uh, but thank you for being with us today from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us and be well. Walton Arts Center presents Damn Tall Buildings, bringing their bluegrass and American roots-inspired music to West Street Live, Thursday, February 1st. And on Friday, February 2nd, Brian Blade and the Fellowship Band bring their jazz and gospel-rooted sound to the Starlight Jazz Club Series. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org. KUAF is supported by Penguinette's Barbecue, open for curbside pickup seven days a week at Mission and Crossover in Fayetteville, and open seven days a week with dine-in, patio, and curbside pickup at the historic B&B location. PenguinEds.com for menus.